Good morning. Last week we kicked off our series on fasting, and I, I shared in that about my daughter. Maybe you were here and you remember my daughter loves to snack and to eat all the time. In fact, for her to go 30 minutes or 45 minutes without eating, you would think is the end of the world. And last week, as I was talking about her, I looked over at my daughter to watch her open up a snack as I'm talking about her constant snacking. And as she's listening to this desperation that she's going to die without eating, I watch her in slow motion just take this snack to her mouth. Like, uh uh-oh, busted. And I almost called her out for it, but thought I'd embarrass her. So I told her later, I said, hey, I noticed that snack you're eating. She's like, dad, you should have said something. That would have been funny. So there you go. You're welcome. Fasting for most of us is this thing that we really only do if a doctor tells us we have to. We try to avoid Fasting is a thing we're not really super comfortable with. Fasting is one of those things for most of us that if a doctor tells us we have to, we're willing to do. But outside of that, fasting is usually a practice in the West that we completely ignore. We say, well, that's for other people, or that's not really something I need to do. And to be completely honest, Jesus never commands fasting. In fact, while Jesus is present with his disciples, one of the things that gets Jesus' disciples in trouble is the fact that they're not fasting. And everybody questions this. And Jesus responds, how can you fast while the bridegroom is present, but when he leaves, then you can fast? And the whole early church, though it's nowhere in the New Testament commanded, believed that fasting was a normal and powerful practice to draw us closer to God, to help us connect with him for who he is and to see how he provides and to help transform our innermost being. And yet, for most of us, fasting is a thing we would never really deeply consider. And so as we go through this fasting practice, I want to just once again begin, this is an invitation It is not a requirement to be a Christian. You're not more or less a Christian accordingly. You're not a better Christian for doing it or a worse one for not. If you are eager to be transformed and desire to draw near to God, fasting is one way that you can do that. One way that you can begin to be changed. See, fasting touches at part of the core most part of who we are as people. Here in the West, we have lived for uh, almost 500 years, certainly all of about 450, under a false pretense about our body. If you're familiar at all with the Enlightenment and Rene Descartes, this idea came along trying to prove how do we know that we exist? And ultimately the answer was, I think, therefore I am. Our ability to process and think and rationalize sets us apart from all the rest of creation. And the only way we can actually think is if there's something there to cause that thinking. Therefore, we must exist. And this started a whole train of thought that has drastically shaped our world in the West as we know it. That says our bodies are not nearly as important as the minds that inhabit them. So as long as we train our mind and we fix our mind on the right things, as long as we learn to think differently, we will become different. And this has even shaped the way we think about eternity. In fact, if 
any of you grew up like me, maybe you grew up in a church where it was regularly talked about going to heaven. I can't wait to go to heaven. Heaven's going to be greater. Maybe jokes about heaven were made, like heaven's a place where you get to play as much golf as you want and where calories don't count. And you can eat whatever you want, and that's heaven. And we just pictured this eternal retirement with no consequences. I'm like, that sounds lovely. Well, as I was in seminary, I was told to read a book that was not written by a Lutheran. And if you ever go to a Lutheran seminary, you know that's kind of rare. They're pretty particular. And so to read this book written by somebody else with a different view on things, I was like, what are we getting into? And in this book, the author went through the Greek and the New Testament and the whole early Jewish culture of the early Christian church, specifically regarding the body. What are we as people at our core? As he unpacked scripture, it gave me a whole new perspective I had never been taught growing up. See, I always imagine that this body is temporary, that when I die, it doesn't really matter. You can throw me in a ditch. Who cares? Because I'm out of here. See you later. But the picture in scripture for our hope as Christians is actually that this body is eternal. Now, this one that you see before you, unless Jesus returns, will probably end up in the dirt somewhere and will begin to rot and decompose. But there is a promise that when Jesus returns, he will raise the dead from the ground and give to all of us new bodies. Bodies that are without sin and that are perfect in every single way. And I have no idea what my perfect body will look like. Maybe 30 pounds less and a lot more muscle. I'm not sure. Maybe it'll look a lot like it currently does, just I won't be able to sin. I don't know. But when he returns, I will have a body. And so will you. And part of why death is so terrible and our enemy as Christians, why death is not a thing to celebrate as a good thing, is because death actually separates what God created to be eternally together. You see, in the beginning, when God made Adam, he formed Adam out of the dust, and then he breathed his life into Adam. And that breath of life is what is called throughout history the soul. Our, not just our rational being, but our sense of self that goes beyond our body and into a consciousness and an understanding and an awareness of God and his very presence with us. And God, when he made us, made us to be both body and soul forever. But death separates those two. And if you read in scripture, those who have died before Christ's return, especially the martyrs, are there before God in heaven crying out, How long, O Lord? They're waiting for their bodies and their souls to be reunited at the last resurrection, the day to come. And so while heaven is really great, our hope as Christians is not to leave this world. It's actually that God would come into this world and restore it and remake everything that for all eternity, this body and soul can live in perfect unity with God. That changes a lot about how we treat this body. If we think this body is disposable, then it doesn't really matter what you put into it or what you do with it. It doesn't really matter how you change it or treat it. Eventually, it's just going to be worm food, so who cares? 
But if your body is a part of who you are for all eternity, then how you treat your body actually invites you to draw near to God. This is where historically people in their time of prayer would maybe get down on their knees or position themselves in a different position. They would place their body in a posture preparing to do something different in that moment. Because how we change our body posture changes our situational awareness, changes the way we think about the moment. Our body and our soul are connected. There's a really big problem with our body. And I've already mentioned, we are sinful. Things right now are not as they should be. Every one of us is broken. In fact, our very DNA at its core is broken. And so you and I as Christians have a challenge deep within us. God has given us new life by his spirit in baptism. We're made new. We are joined with Christ's death as we discussed in Romans a few weeks back. You and I are new creations in Christ. But that old body still exists. And with it comes desires and longings and hurts that tear us away from God. Paul in Scripture, he describes this body in the New Testament as the flesh. And the works of the flesh lead to death, while the works of the Spirit lead to life. And so this is where we're going to begin today in Romans chapter 7. If you'd like to follow along, it is on page 1,178 of those Bibles in front of you, the blue ones, or the, they're along the walls upstairs. In Romans chapter 7, as he describes the flesh, he says this, beginning in verse 15. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is, it, um, what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Maybe you can relate to this in your struggle against sin. You find yourself doing things you don't want to do and you know it's not fulfilling and you know it's not right and you know it will ultimately hurt you and the people you love. And yet you're drawn back to it time and time again like a moth to the flame. You're drawn to the very thing that destroys you. You want to love your neighbor or your family member. You want to forgive those who've wronged you. You want to do good to those who've hurt you. You want to be somebody different. And yet you keep being drawn back into the same person, the same problems, the same hurt time and time again. See, our body, the flesh, this desire within us is broken. And none of us, no matter how hard you try, by your power can ever change. This is why addictive behaviors are so prevalent in our culture. 
Whether your addictive behavior is a substance that the culture says, hey, maybe don't drink that or smoke that or use that. Or maybe your addictive behavior is your phone and the device that you just keep being drawn back to. Or your addictive behavior is your pattern of self-thought that's negative and tears you down and you just keep being drawn into these really terrible thoughts about yourself and the world around you. We are creatures broken and filled with addictive behaviors that draw us away from God. And so in Christ, we need something different to change us to begin to become the kind of person he made us to be, to begin to become the kind of man or woman or husband or wife or individual that God made you to be, we need a power from outside of us to come and transform us. If you jump forward a few chapters in Romans to chapter 12, if you've never read chapter 12 before, I recommend later today going and reading the whole thing. It's one of the best chapters, in my opinion, in Scripture. But chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, Paul, he continues and he says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul, in this book of Romans, spells out this argument that sin continues to destroy us, but the grace of God, the gift that comes from without us into us, this gift that is not of our own merit, but freely given, he says this changes everything. And then in chapter 12, he shifts the argument from the gospel of God working in us to what happens now as we live out this faith. And he says, I appeal to you now, therefore, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, that your very body can be a testimony to the goodness of God to his power to transform our lowly, broken, sinful nature into something altogether different. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Be transformed into something and someone new. The reason we talk about practices of faith in this place is not because they are essential for you to love Jesus. They make no difference in whether or not you are saved. No, these practices instead give you and I a tangible way, something to cling to, to draw us out of our own power and to learn to rely on a power that comes from God, to be transformed into somebody new. That this sinful, broken nature can begin each day to die to itself. In fact, if you listen to much of Jesus' words, he used those very words. He said, anyone who will come after me must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Repeatedly, he said that to follow him would be difficult and painful and the world will not understand you but it will always be worth it. You and I are invited to become somebody different. Now let me just pause and warn you. 
As you become somebody new, you will never become perfect. And you will never by any practice become somebody who is better than anybody else. On this journey with God, we are equally always broken. So it's not about earning anything from God or gaining special favor or or entering into the special holiness that nobody else has. It's about becoming who we were supposed to be all along. And as we become that, the light shines in us and shines through us to a dark and broken world that when people look at you and look at me, they don't see our self-righteousness and go, wow, that person's awesome. Or wow, that person's really terrible. But instead, as we are transformed, they see God at work in you and say, I want more of whatever's doing that in them. I want the same God they have. Flip with me a little bit further forward to the book of 1 Timothy. This is on page 1,235 if you're using those blue Bibles. This is a letter that Paul writes to a young pastor, somebody becoming a pastor, who Paul himself had a great hand in mentoring and leading and shaping and guiding. And Paul writes this letter to prepare him to become a pastor even more so. He's serving as a pastor, but Paul says, look, there are challenges and hardships, and it is difficult. Here's what I want to encourage you with. 1 Timothy, chapter 5. I'm sorry, chapter 4. Beginning in verse 7, he says this. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself For godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. You see, Paul, as he's writing, he recognizes that for every one of us, there is a real value in bodily training. If you want to run a marathon, I don't suggest you just go out and do it tomorrow. You will regret that decision. Even if you're successful, it will not go well for you. If you want to run a marathon, you begin with training. Little by little, incrementally, you build up the stamina and the strength and the ability to persevere and endure and succeed in something difficult. Bodily training is of value, but training in godliness is of greater value. But how do we go about training in godliness. In the book of Philippians, Paul writes that he urges the church to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. And oftentimes, especially in the South, where we have this idea that the body is disposable, we treat salvation as a one-time moment where we are now getting out of jail. It's, it's like our get-out-of-hell-free card in Monopoly. We're safe and we're set, good to go. When did you get saved? Oh, that happened then. Now I'm fine. But scripture uses salvation altogether differently. It is the process by which we continually are healed. The process by which we are invited with this sinful, broken nature to die to ourselves and become more like God each day. So to work out our salvation with fear and trembling is each day to live in such a way that we train for something different. That we purposefully take up habits and practices and customs, things that will stretch us a little bit outside of our comfort zone, a little bit outside of our norm, a little bit into something different. That through the process, we become someone different. 
he goes on to say this. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. We toil and we strive because our hope is set on the living God. You and I do not seek to become somebody new out of anything within us, but because there is a God who has conquered our greatest enemy. Death itself is defeated. And because he is the living God, we have hope that all that is dead within us will one day be made new and we will live. And should he not return between now and when we die, we can rest assured that when he comes back to judge the living and the dead, we will then be declared perfect and given a new body for all of time, one that can no longer sin in any way. And with that new body, we can do all the things we get to do now, like hug our loved ones and taste the goodness of God and the food that's before us and see his beauty in all of his creation. And with those new bodies for all of time, we get to join with all the angels declaring, holy, holy, holy are you, Lord. Our glory and power and dominion are yours. But until that time, how do we train ourselves for godliness? How do we become more of who we want to be and not who we are today? And this is where fasting enters in as perhaps one of the most powerful invitations. See, when we fast, we discover in ourselves a whole lot of our own weakness and our own brokenness. When we fast and we choose for a period of time to go without eating, we force ourselves in that period of time to trust in the God who provides for everything we need. When we fast and we find our stomach grumbling and our mind being consumed with food we want to eat, we are invited even in that suffering, in that pain, to experience the goodness of God. So today I want to encourage you with four things that I believe happen when we choose to fast. So that if you choose to begin the practice of fasting, perhaps this week for you skip a meal or perhaps sun up until sundown or maybe a whole 24 hours, if you choose to embrace this practice and experiment, I think these four things over time begin to happen. First, when we fast, it directly attacks our very pleasure principle. I don't know if you know anything about psychology. Sigmund Freud, he said the, the body, the person, is essentially three things. The id, the ego, and the superego. The id is that which drives us to seek immediate gratification and pleasure, known as the pleasure principle. We see the id all the time in children. All right? You have a small child who wants something. Maybe it's seconds on dessert, or maybe it's a toy somebody else has, and what do they do? They simply go over and take it, or they hit to get it, or they whine and they cry until eventually his parents are like, please just stop talking. Here you go. You can have it. They do whatever they can to immediately get the thing they want. And for most of us, we don't really grow out of this. We live in a culture that has such instant gratification. Next time you go through a drive-thru and you're the only one in the drive-thru and you sit there for five minutes before they give you your food, how will you respond to the people working there? 
For most of us, that five minutes will feel like an hour or a day and we'll be filled with all kinds of anger. Or you're driving and you're late to work or school or church, for, you know, God forbid even that, and you get stopped at a red light. And that 15 seconds at the red light It's the longest 15 seconds in your life, and you're angry and irritable. How come I can't get to where I want to be any faster? And you're tempted to just floor it and go a few miles per hour above the speed limit just to make up that time. But you know, statistically, it doesn't matter how much above the speed limit you go, you're not going to get there any quicker. It's a weird math. That's the way it works. But we all are driven by this pleasure principle, this desire for instantaneous everything. And we think that if we for any moment are uncomfortable or not getting the thing that we really want, that something bad will happen to us. When we intentionally practice fasting, it's a direct affront to this nature within each one of us. It's a direct assault saying, I do not need instantly all the things I think I need. And it actually begins to work in us to create patience and contentment with the things we don't have, and peace with all that could otherwise be anxiety-ridden. As we can directly confront this need for instant gratification, to say, I'm going to delay this until later, it begins to transform us to see what we need versus what we want, and to know the difference. Last week, I challenged you guys, maybe consider on Ash Wednesday this last week, fasting for a portion of Ash Wednesday. And so I decided if I was going to challenge you to do that, I should do the same. And so I fasted for the day up until sundown. And about three o'clock in the afternoon, I went to empty my coat pockets and I pulled the stuff out onto my work desk. And there in my coat pockets had been three pieces of candy. I don't remember when I put them in my coat pocket, but that was the worst day to pull them out. And the rest of the workday, as I sat there at my desk, I saw those starbursts and those Skittles and I thought, I fasted long enough, right? What's one little piece of candy? But you see, when you and I practice through fasting saying no to that instant pleasure, it actually begins to change who we are in all things. The red light becomes less of a burden, and it doesn't really matter if your waiter or waitress isn't immediately ready to serve you. It'll be okay. So fasting helps wean us from this automatic childlike pleasure uh, that is in all of us that we're seeking. In addition to this fasting, it also helps us uh, to, to see the very things that are in our heart. You see, every one of us being broken has desires that are not good. Desires that maybe are not bad, but they're not the greatest desire. And when we practice fasting, we begin to see the very things that we have clung to for our identity, for our hope, for our strength, even just as a distraction from the world around us. And the problem with fasting is when it begins to reveal what's in your heart, you're faced with two options. Either own up to what's in your heart and turn it to the Lord and say, what do I do with this? Or deny what's in your heart and say, that's not me, that's not my problem, and try to run from it. When we practice fasting as a habit on a consistent basis, those things that are within us that we have run from for a long time eventually begin to come back and keep resurfacing until we can no longer avoid them and we have 
to begin to work through them. And sometimes that process of working through them requires the help of others to discuss and say, what do I do with this? Sometimes it requires much more than just, well, I fasted and now it's gone. It's an opportunity to turn to the Lord and draw closer to him because our desires are misaligned. It's our hope that we would learn each day to want what God wants a little bit more. So that when we come before him in prayer and we ask him for things, we are asking a little bit more for the very things he already wants to do. Fasting is a means that reveals what's in our heart. And you know what? If you've never done it before, I warned you last week, when you fast, you will become hangry at some point. Because most of us live in our culture today with some measure of pent-up anger and anxiety and stress that we have not learned how to let go of healthily. And most of us, when we fast and are confronted with the lack of immediate gratification and are forced to see what's in our heart, we'll begin to discover that what's in our heart is not as pure and good as we thought. And fasting invites us to bring all of that to the surface and then lay it before the Lord. Say, will you change me? The third thing that fasting does It helps reorder our desires that we can begin as we lay everything before the Lord. Say, God, what is it you want? What is it that actually matters? You know what? As I sat there staring at those Starbursts and those Skittles that sounded really good, they didn't really matter. So they sat there the rest of the day. And I kept staring at them thinking, I really want that. But God, help me to not want sugar as much as I want you or even more than you. Help me to begin to actually long to be near you more than I long for my next caffeine fix or whatever else we fill in the void with. Fasting not only reveals our heart, but it begins to transform it, that we can become more like God. Never being God, that's reserved for him, but more like him. And finally, the fourth thing that fasting will do if you take this on is it gives you a power outside of yourself to become somebody new. See, when we fast, we recognize our flesh is broken, but God's spirit is enough. And when we fast, we invite God in his spirit, come and reveal and transform and take hold of my life. And we actually find in God the power to resist sin, to resist the immediate temptation to say no to those things that have for so long wrecked our hearts. When we fast, we are invited to recognize that we cannot change our flesh, but he can. We cannot become who we want to be, but he can do that in us. And so when we fast, we actually find a strength to resist the devil and temptation and sin like we have not before. And even if you practice fasting twice a week, every week for the next 80 years, the beauty of this all is there will always be something more that God is giving to you. Something new to reveal about himself or a deeper place to help you begin to realize your own depravity. And there will always be some new way that he connects you to him. So I want to end with where I began. You don't need to fast. But if you are not who you want to be, 
if God does not shine in you or through you the way you hope he would. If you desire to draw closer to God and find his strength to resist who you are and become who you can be, to do what you want to do and to not do the things you don't want to do. Fasting is an invitation from God. Come and trust in me and let me lead you and guide you where you don't yet know you need to go. And in that, every one of us is invited to come as we are and over time to slowly become somebody altogether different, made in his image, made in his likeness for the sake of the world around us. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we ask that you today would reveal to us your heart. Where our minds are filled with negative self-talk, would you speak the truth of who you see us as? Where our hearts are filled with longings and desires that are contrary to your will, would you bring us to repentance? Fill our hearts with all the things you long for. As we sang earlier, break our hearts for what breaks yours. God, we ask that you would reveal to us the power of your spirit. That we would live not by our strength or our own might. God, that we would be transformed no longer conform to the ways of this world, but made new in your image. God, as we here in a moment pray as you taught us to pray, Lord, we ask that your kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. So now, Lord, we pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. As we continue our worship today, we are going to continue by collecting an offering. We believe in this place that the Lord loves a generous and cheerful giver. And so there's no obligation to give. It's an invitation by the Lord to trust him with our finances and also to participate in the work that he is doing in and through this congregation in our city and our community. So if you are somebody who would like to participate in that and you came prepared to do so, and you prefer to do with cash or check, you can give today by placing something in, the on, or in an envelope and in the black boxes as you exit. If you filled out one of those teal cards that says connect, you can place that in there with a prayer request or a way we can connect with you as well. And if you are somebody who calls this church your home and you came prepared to give today, but you prefer to do so online, you can do so at thepointknox.com by clicking the little teal button in the bottom corner. However you give and whatever you give, know this. We don't give to get God's love, but because we already have it. Thank you. I love it when Emily gets her whole family involved in the announcement videos, especially Dale. That is her favorite family member. Uh, 
Every week we invite you to text in your questions and I do my best to respond. So, Emily, what questions came in today? Um, good question. How is your body part of yourself for all of eternity? I thought once we die, we leave our bodies behind. Temporarily until Christ returns. That's where in the Apostles' Creed we say we believe in the resurrection of the body. Uh, if you die before he returns... This body as it sits will be left behind, but you will in the resurrection be given a new one, a new one that is perfect and without sin. And if you and I get to be the lucky few who are alive when Jesus returns, somehow this body will be perfect and I will never die. But I'm not sure which is better. Either way, we get a new body for all eternity. Cool. Um, next question, does this church have a youth program? Always a work in progress, so yes. Uh, what age youth? Uh, we have a lot of kids under the age of second grade, a handful of kids between third and sixth grade, and a handful more that are in middle school and high school. And so if your kids fall into any of those categories, we would love to connect with you and connect you to the people who are helping serve in each of those areas and um, find ways to help your kids really connect with Jesus and grow. So uh, if, you, if this is you, come talk to me. We'd love to help you plug in. Yes. Okay, next question. If our bodies are to be raised at the last resurrection, what happens to those who have been cremated? What is the Christian or more specifically the Lutheran opinion on cremation? Ooh, I will definitely have to do a point leftovers on this because there's too much to say. But the short answer is it's not sinful to be cremated. But for nearly 2,000 years, the church has wrestled with this question. Uh, they even, about 1,800 years ago, asked the hard question, if you drown at sea and get eaten by fish, what happens to your body at the resurrection? You know, because you can ask tough questions and be Christian. That's, that's fine. Um, I would say that the short answer is it's not sinful to be cremated, but it doesn't do a very good job communicating the message of hope that we have in the resurrection. So while you can choose to be cremated, most people choose to be cremated for one of two reasons. Either it's cheaper than being buried or... They uh, have some weird ideas of what to do with their ashes after they die. And I would say for that second one, let's talk. And for that first one, there are ways to be buried naturally for next to nothing in cost. And I will gladly tell you all about them. And if you get cremated, I will still do a funeral for you and celebrate the resurrection and the hope that we have in the future. Okay. <laughs> next question. Um, how do you prepare your sermons and remember the content? practice. Um, specifically, how do I prepare sermons? I aim to spend a few hours in the text each week. When we have, like going through Romans, the text is pre-assigned. That's a little easier because I know where to start. When we have something like fasting, I have to do a little more digging and reading and, and research, so that takes a little more time. And I try to do that in the beginning of the week and towards the end of the week. Um, I try to just focus on kind of an outline because if I memorize word for word what I tried to say, I would probably get it wrong every time. So then an outline. And uh, some weeks I get to devote more time to it than others. And some weeks I pray a whole lot that God will fill in the gaps. And uh, yeah, there's a whole science behind it. But uh, my favorite part of my job is not the sermon writing or even preaching. My favorite part is the coffee drinking and conversations with you. So I'd love to schedule more of, of my time. How many cups of coffee do you drink on a Sunday morning? On a Sunday morning, usually between 3 and 4 before 9.30. Me uh, too, but I go, I can't, okay, yeah. Sometimes, 
sometimes I'm like six or eight. That's when you really know it's going to be a fun morning. Um, yeah. That's crazy. Okay, that's it, I think. That's it? All the questions? I think so. Cool. Well, every question is a safe question. You can ask them all anytime. And if they're really big ones or if they're ones I don't have any clue what you're talking about and I need to do some research, I will do my best to do that research and do a Point Leftovers video that we share on our social media later in the week. And so um, please feel free to ask questions all week long. That number is on our website. Now, as you go, receive this blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he look upon you with favor and give you his peace. Amen. Amen. Have a good week. Thank you for listening to one of our Sunday morning messages. If this message has made an impact in your life, please let us know. Simply fill out the Contact Us page on thepointknox.com. And if you'd like to be a part of supporting The Point Ministry, simply go to thepointknox.com forward slash support. Don't hesitate to contact us or join us in person every Sunday morning at 1030 a.m. We pray this message has an impact in your life or at least makes it easy for you to connect with God where you are.